Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. All right, so we're walking through the book of Joshua and we're seeing how God uses people, right? The processes that he takes and how, how we can apply some of these things to our lives now because the Old Testament, it gives us stories that apply these New Testament principles. Now, Chuck Swindoll, he tells this story of a conference he attended with a group of top executives. And at this conference, they were discussing uh, various principles of leadership. And they came to the conclusion that there are two things that are the most difficult uh, to get people to do. And the first one is really just to think. I mean, don't you, don't you feel like that sometimes? It's just hard to get people to think. Now, if you're at a Hill Country at home group or uh, with other people, don't look at anyone here. You're just going to get yourself in trouble. Uh, but the second thing that they uh, found out was to do things in the order of their importance. And so the first challenge is to get people to slow down enough to think to think before they speak or before they act. And there's a whole lot of people who just struggle with this and they process thoughts while they're already talking about it and while they're already acting on it. It's, it's hard sometimes to stop and think things through to their logical conclusion before taking action. I mean, I, I remember listening to John Madden announce football games and you just immediately knew he was formulating his sentences as the words were leaving his lips. I mean, you have gems like these, like, the defense should be expecting a run or a pass here, like, of course. Or they'll score if they could just get into the end zone. Okay. And the best way to gain more yards is to advance the ball downfield. <laughs> and, and I wish that this was limited to sports commentators, but really, most people don't take enough time to think things through. But there was another problem identified by these top executives, and that is that most people also fail to do things in their proper order of importance. That, that's the principle of first things first, right? Don't, don't get the cart before the horse. Ready, fire, aim isn't a good idea in any part of life. And nowhere is it more important than when it comes to following God's leadership. So in Joshua chapter 5, we're going to uncover some of God's first things first principles when it comes specifically to the area of winning spiritual victories. And the order that God lays out here is very different than you might expect. So let's begin in uh, verse 1 of Joshua chapter 5. It says, When all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanite kings near the sea, heard how the Lord had dried up the water of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, they lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. So the Amorites and the Canaanites, they heard about God's miracle and they got scared. They, it says they lost heart and their courage failed. So morale for all these troops was at an all-time low. This, this must be the moment to attack, right? Strike. Strike now while the iron's hot. Don't, don't let them forget the miracle and gain confidence again. I mean, go for it. I mean, that's, that's what I would have done. And that's what I would have been thinking here. But I would have been wrong. 
You see, at, at first glance, in this entire chapter of Joshua, the Israelites appear to be doing things that are completely irre- irrelevant to the objective, which is, you know, the conquest of the land. But when you study it carefully, you'll discover that what they're doing is very relevant. And in fact, it's typical of the way God operates in our life. And we can spare ourselves, and you can spare yourself a lot of heartache in life if we'll just follow some of God's first things, first principles here. Because many times in our personal lives, when we encounter the enemy, we're so eager to charge ahead, to engage, to fight, that we fail to put God's priorities first. And so in our passage this morning, God gives us three principles to follow before we fight uh, the spiritual battles in our life. And the first thing is this, before we engage in spiritual battle, we should confirm our commitment to obey. Confirm our commitment to obey. So God tells, us, tells them to stop. Stop what you're doing and obey. Notice what he says in verse two. He says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelite men at Gibeath Haeraloth. This is the reason Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out were circumcised, none of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. For the Israelites wandered in the wilderness 40 years until all the nation's men of war who came out of Egypt had died off because they did not obey the Lord. So the Lord vowed never to let them see the land he had sworn to their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. He raised up their sons in their place. It was these Joshua circumcised. Now, the first question we're left with in this passage is, why did they they need to be circumcised? What's, What's the big deal with circumcision? And the next question is, why now? Of all times, Why circumcise the Israelites now? Well, in Genesis chapter 17, God told Abraham that circumcision would be the sign of the covenant and that every male child had to be circumcised. Every male Jewish child would be marked for life. And these markings, uh, they're significant in at least three ways. And first, it said to the individual, I belong to God. Placing placing a mark on a very prominent uh, place of the male anatomy would serve as a constant reminder that that a person belonged to God, that his body was owned by the Lord. And secondly, this mark is significant because it means that God is involved in my present, like right now, every moment. You know, in some cases, people think that God's involved in my public life, but what I do in private, that's, that's my own business. But no, God God expected to be the Lord in all areas of the Israelites' lives. So for every Jewish man, if he was ever tempted to engage in something immoral, he was faced with this mark that reminded him, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God right now. And finally, the third reason this mark is significant is because it says that God is my future. It reminded them that the next generation comes about because of what God's doing. And the next generation belongs to God. But for 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't circumcise any of the men. So now they have to do it before they can conquer the land. 
But there's a slight problem with that. It slows them down a bit. Look at, look at verse 8. It says, After the entire nation had been circumcised, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. I bet they did take a break till they healed. Like, coach, I, I just got to take a knee for a minute because this isn't just the babies. This is, this is the military men, 21 and older. And this is a painful process, especially for the adults. And it's not easy to fight when you're incapacitated, right? And isn't it interesting that God takes them across the Jordan and puts the water at their backs so there's a barrier behind them before he commands them all to be circumcised? You see, what what God wants them to understand is that pain and vulnerability often accompany obedience. Doing what God wants us to do rather than what we want to do is sometimes painful. And obedience can, can also leave us feeling vulnerable, just like the Israelites here. To go to someone who's wronged you and forgive them, that's tough. Or to ask someone to forgive you, that takes vulnerability. You're putting yourself in a position where you could be hurt. But that's the nature of obedience. Obedience is doing whatever God says and trusting him with the results. And before we charge forward in life, we should confirm our commitment to obey, no matter what the cost. The second thing, uh, before we engage in spiritual battle, we should consider the blessings so far. Thanksgiving right? Consider the blessings so far. One of the most important things we can do before we launch into a new spiritual challenge in life is to stop and count our blessings from the past. It's a way to build our faith and and faith always comes before obedience. Notice what they do in verse 10. It says, while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. Now, that, that's a verse you probably uh, read over quick and say, okay, so they had something to eat over Passover. But, but don't miss a, a key phrase here. It says they ate of the land. God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. But along the way uh, there, they spent 40 years in the wilderness where, where God fed them with manna, right? Miracle food, cornflakes from heaven. That's what he fed them going through the wilderness. And, and once they got into the promised land, they fed themselves on what the land provided. So he promised them a land that they would eat from. And now they are, they're benefiting from it. So what happened? Verse 12. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. So God stopped flowing stuff down from heaven because now you, you can get it for yourself. It's kind of like when your kids are babies, you, you have to do it all for them. You, you have to get the milk, you have to feed them, you have to cut up the food, right? But you, you have to do all of that. But if your 12-year-old is asking you to feed them and cut up their food, there, there might be a little bit of a problem. In other words, there, there comes a place in our spiritual walk where we should exercise responsibility in, in order to, to enjoy what God has provided. So sometimes people are asking God for a miracle from heaven like manna when they refuse to take what God's already provided for them on earth, to use what tools God has already given them. So consider the blessings God's given you so far. But 
Here's the problem. We have a tendency to take God's miraculous normal dealings and we chalk them up to mother nature or to the natural world. And we say, God, if you haven't done anything big and wow and out of the ordinary, then you, you haven't done anything. But it's time for the nation of Israel to grow up and recognize God's blessings, both in the natural order of things and in the supernatural. And this truth really hits close to home if, if you think about it. I mean, how often do we gloss over the ordinary natural blessings uh, God does for us each day? And, and we wish he would perform more out of the ordinary acts. I, I wonder sometimes how God must feel when we, when we fail to see what all he's done for us, when we fail to consider the blessing so far. And I think, I think if you watch kids, you'll probably get some insight into how we come across to God. And I'm, I'm sure this never happens in your house, but our kids, they, they have a TV sitting there with a uh, pile of DVDs right there. And there's a Nintendo Switch system uh, with a bunch of games for them to play. They have uh, some handheld devices as well. And not to mention all the different kinds of board games and yard games and bikes and scooters. I mean, and you've probably gone to soccer practice already that day and your gymnastics practice. And the weekend before you went to the pool and all, all the kids in the neighborhood are out running around playing and your kids are sitting there on the couch with a frown on their face. And one of them looks up at you and says, we're so bored. There's nothing to do around here. And you're like, what? What does that even mean? There's nothing to do around here. You know what that means? It means there's nothing out of the ordinary. There's nothing exciting. There's nothing special. There's, there's nothing better than all the blessings that, that we already have around here and all the fun things I could be doing. I think God must feel the same way. He looks down at us and he's provided for, for all of our needs. He's fed us and clothed us. He's taken care of us and he's given us life eternal and love and relationships with other people. But we sit there and we look at all that we don't have and we wish we had and we say, God, there's, there's nothing to do around here. And really, we're, we're all in danger of taking God's blessings for granted. Even the common blessings are still blessings. And here, in the, the, nation, here the nation of Israel pauses before they, they go into battle to celebrate the Passover, uh, to celebrate this new land. And then, they, and then finally, there's, there's one more order of business before they move forward, before we engage in spiritual battle. The third thing is we should clarify our rank in God's army. Clarify our rank in God's army. Before we charge ahead, we better remember who's in charge. We should clarify our rank in God's army. Notice, notice what happens next in, in verse 13. It says, when Joshua, was, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Drawn sword in his, in his hand. So, so here's the scene. Joshua is scouting out the, the plains of Jericho, scanning the horizon, and he looks across, and then he looks back, and boom, all of a sudden, totally without warning, there's someone standing in front of him. Now, you talk about being caught off guard. What he sees is a man standing there with his sword drawn. Now, I don't know about you, but I would say that's just a little bit intimidating. A sword in hand is not exactly your customary greeting gesture, right? I mean, imagine going, uh, you're going to your hill country at home group and the, the host is standing outside with a, a drawn sword. You wouldn't be thinking, my, what, what a friendly home. 
No, you'd probably be looking for another group. I mean, for multiple reasons, because that's just kind of strange. But this isn't just some casual guy Joshua sees here. This is someone who's prepared to fight. So what does Joshua do? Well, he asks a question in verse 13. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, I'm assuming Joshua's thinking that if this man says he's for the enemy, Joshua's going to be drawing his sword too. But watch what the man says in verse 14. Are you for us or for our enemies? And the man answers, neither, right? And I love the the literal translation from the Hebrew. It actually says no. Like, I'm not even going to acknowledge the question. No, he says, "Um, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, a, that's an incredible statement right there. Because this, that means this person is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus Christ stands there before Joshua with a drawn sword. And when Joshua wants to know whose side he's on, the response is neither. Because that's the wrong question. When God shows up, he doesn't take sides. He takes over. This is God's fight, not Joshua's fight. And the armies of the Lord are there to fight too. Look at what Joshua does in verse 14. It says, Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in homage and, and, or worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? So Joshua is still looking for information. He, he assumes that this guy has a message that'll tell him what he's supposed to do, but Notice the response in verse 15. It says, The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did that. I mean, what message do you have for us? What, what's the battle strategy? What plan should we follow? And the man says, Listen, here, here's the plan, Joshua. Worship me. Take off your shoes because this is holy ground. He's reminding Joshua, I don't, I don't need any help to win this, bo- uh, this battle. I've got it. I'm here and I don't need you. And Joshua is now demoted from the commander of the Israelite army to private first class in the ranks of God's army. And you know what? One, one of the greatest tendencies we have when, we're in, when we engage in spiritual battles is to think that God is here to fight for us. God, I've I've got some battles to fight. Will you fight my battles for me? Will you deal with these people in my life who are bothering me? Here's here's what I want you to do, God, right? But you know what? God God doesn't do that. Now, unfortunately, there are plenty uh, of historical demonstrations of mankind trying to pick a fight and then get God on their side. Remember the Crusades? Gosh, that that wasn't God's war. That That was the Europeans' war. They said, hey, God, come be on our side. And, and they, they sent troops down to Jerusalem and marched around the city like uh, we're going to see the Israelites do under Joshua next week. And they, they were thinking that, that God was going to bring down the walls just like he did at Jericho. But you know what happened? Nothing. Because it wasn't God's battle. And unfortunately, that wasn't the only time in history. The Inquisition was the same way. The Salem witch hunts were the same way. Right? That's not God. That's people saying, I'm going to start a fight and then ask God to step in and help me. And we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble 
when we think we're the commander in chief. So keep your rank in mind and allow God to be the leader in your spiritual battles. Now, I want to bring your attention to one small portion of that text. It's when God says, um, remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did that. Because what God is telling Joshua here is, I've given you the place where you're standing. But not just so that you can get fat and happy and live in peace and security because you're the favored people. No, no, God is saying you've been given holy ground. And I expect that this land will be used as a place of worship that brings glory to me. And in every spiritual battle in which God grants us victory, the proper response is not to be proud or arrogant, not to think, man, look how great I am or look how favored I am by God. No, the proper response is to use the victory as a platform to worship, to praise God and give him the credit for the incredible things that he's done on on your behalf or my behalf. So three powerful lessons here to help you put first things first. Obedience, thanksgiving, and remembering who's in charge. Remembering your rank in God's army. If you keep these priorities uh, in in mind, then, then you too will experience spiritual victories. So let's pray. God, Thank you for these stories in the Old Testament that we can, that we can look at and, and not repeat, but apply. Apply the principles that we see in the, in the New Testament. God, give us strength as we uh, try to, to put into practice these first things first principles that you lay out here. God, we know that you have a better way and your ways are not our ways. God, sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we don't, we don't have a clear picture of what you're trying to do. But give us, give us uh, just the strength to confirm our commitment to you, our commitment to obey no matter what. No matter what happens, that we trust you with the results and not get out of line in your army. God, we love you and thank you and praise you because you deserve all of it. We pray this in your name. Amen.